Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Another great day, beautiful day, and I am so excited about the show today. But first, a special shout out to my good friend, Yoshiko Dart. Yoshiko, thinking about you, keep fighting the fight for us, and wow, we have so many listeners throughout the world. Once again, it's Ireland that has this big listening audience. So, you know, keep telling other people because the more people you tell, the greater this audience is going to be. And the bigger the audience, the more people with disabilities that we help. Thank you. Hi, Mark, Blue Cross Blue Shield, for being the lead sponsor of Disability Matters with Joyce Bender and AudioEye for also being a sponsor of the show. We thank you both so much. Well, I told you at the beginning, I'm really excited about the show today. Many reasons, but one is because we have a Paul Hearn Award winner as our guest today, but I have known our guest today for a while, and I can tell you she is 100% 100% a disability rights advocate fighting the fight for people. She is a just disability justice leader, organizer, writer, fighting for people, autistic. She does so much. Lydia, welcome to the show. Joyce, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you, and I think it would be great if we start by telling our listeners how and why you became an advocate in the disability rights community. Like most disabled people, I grew up not knowing a lot about disability and not really getting to know other disabled people unless... We were in some space together because we were being told there was something wrong with us. There were the sped kids at school, the other kids in my church that people would pity and say things like they would hope they would get healed one day. And one day there was me being told suddenly both that I was really gifted, something I've been told since I was a little kid, and at the same time that I have all these deficits that I'm supposed to try to cure or overcome or hide somehow, that there's something shameful and bad. And so for most of my life, all I knew about disability was that it was something that made a person less than. That's the message that society gave me. And that the only way for me to deal with being labeled as a person with a disability, was to try to not be that anymore. It took me until partway through high school, which is surprisingly young for a lot of disabled advocates. That's a very early age, even though it was well into my teenage years, for me to learn that there's such a thing as disabled people that are open and proud about who they are, about how their brains and their bodies work, who are fighting against the ideas of pity or shame or charity, the idea that we need to be fixed, the idea that we're broken, who were demanding rights, equality, justice, freedom, something better in society, 
something about changing our culture so that people like me and whoever's coming after me wouldn't have to be ashamed of themselves anymore, wouldn't have to worry about how they could fix themselves or hide themselves or resigned that they could not. And that knowledge, meeting those adults who were openly and proudly autistic and a few with other disabilities, showed me that not only was it possible to start working for a better world, but that I could be part of that. I could be part of a movement to work toward what justice and freedom might look like for disabled people, to promote the ideals of neurodiversity, to follow in the footsteps of the autistic movement's history of Jim Sinclair, Mel Baggs, Laura Tassanchik, Kassiana Asasumasu, Arena Aman, and to join those who are at the forefront of fighting to change society, fighting to close institutions, end abuse, stop segregation, fix problems of discrimination and prejudice and violence, and also work toward building communities and societies built around access and inclusion and empowerment and interdependence. And for me, as someone who's always believed that whenever any of us has any resources whatsoever, that we are obligated to use those resources against injustice, that meant that I had to do something. Now that I knew about it, I couldn't be silent. It's like Arundhati Roy's quote. Now that you know, there is no innocence. There's no going back. You have to do something about it. You cannot unsee it once you have seen it. And that's why it was not possible for me to choose not to do advocacy work. Wow. That is such a great story. You know, there's always a trigger. I was listening to your story. I have to ask you, you know, when you were in high school, what do you remember as the trigger? What's the thing that happened that made you decide, okay, you know, I'm okay. I'm a person, you know, I'm autistic. I'm okay. And I'm really going to get involved in believing in me and disability rights. What would you say that was? When I was in 11th grade, or maybe it was 10th grade, students in my high school were very interested in doing charity and community service work. It's a mentality that our culture very much promotes, the idea that people who have privilege are supposed to save people who don't, regardless of what that privilege is. It's a very paternalistic patronizing and exploitative mentality, but it's one that's very widespread in our culture. And so I was under the impression that if a group said that it was for charity, unless they were literally committing a genocide, they were probably worth supporting. And coming into my own sense of self as an autistic person, I had heard of this charity, Autism Speaks, that was supporting, supposedly, autistic people and families, and I thought, oh, maybe I should try to support this group, and I decided to start asking neighbors and family friends and friends and classmates, oh, can you donate money into this pile, I'm going to collect a bunch of money, I'll give it to them, they'll help autistic people, and I ended up raising over $1,000. Luckily, I didn't end up giving that money to Autism Speaks, which is an organization that ever since its inception in the mid-2000s has been severely and rightfully criticized 
by actually autistic people for lack of meaningful autistic leadership, for dehumanizing and objectifying and um, media coverage and rhetoric about autistic people, for refusing to actually fund things that support us and on and on and on. And in the course of trying to decide, can I keep fundraising, can I not, I found a number of blog posts written by autistic adult activists writing about these problems that autism speaks writing about their dehumanizing video in which their former board member, was a board member at the time, said on camera that she thought about killing her autistic daughter. And the only reason that she didn't was because she had a non-autistic daughter who'd be waiting for her at home. She made that statement on camera with her autistic daughter in the room. Autism Speaks put that out as a major public service announcement that was supposed to somehow help us, never apologized for it. And since the time that that public service announcement has been released, dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds, of autistic and other disabled people have been murdered by their family members and caregivers because of rhetoric just like that that says that disabled lives are less worth living, that says that we're burdened on our families. So I'm reading these blog posts like these are horrible things that this organization is doing that purports to support us, but it's something that is run about us and absolutely not by us. And I was thinking, oh, God, I cannot support this group. All this money that I've managed to scrape together from all of these hundreds of people I managed to convince to donate money, I can't give this money to that organization. So I did what I had to, right? The only moral decision was to give the money back to each of the people, hundreds of them, who'd agreed to donate to me and to tell them why I was doing it. And once I was finally done with having to own up to my own feeling of humiliation, of having been used, of having been tricked. I then decided, you know, the people that are writing about this, they seem to know what they're talking about. They seem to have a strong sense of who they are, and they recognize that there are many issues in society that affect autistic people that make it hard to live in this world as an autistic person, and yet they're rejecting actively and fighting against this dehumanizing shit. And I thought, these are people that I should know. These are people that I should connect with. And that was the trigger. Wow. I, you know what? I'm still back on that story about the woman that said that she thought about killing her autistic daughter. I mean, that's horrifying. You know, when you said that, you know all I could think of? Diane Coleman, not dead yet. That's all I could think of because she talks about this all the time. Uh, but, yeah, that is absolutely horrible, horrible. Uh, so, yeah, I can see why that impacted you. So, uh, Lydia, tell us about the Alliance for Citizens Directed Services. The Alliance was founded two years ago by a group of advocates in the developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities sphere, mostly a group of people who are not self-advocates, but also including myself and Julia Bascom, who's now the executive director at the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And we founded this group because we saw a missing piece of the disability network. And where that missing piece was the niche that needed to be filled is that there hasn't been a concerted and focused effort 
by a specific group of people with personal and professional expertise to focus on the issue of full community integration as a daily practice. Not merely as a research issue, that exists, there are a lot of wonderful folks out there doing research, not merely as a broad spectrum, eagle eye view policy issue, there are again a lot of folks doing that work. Folks who work on the home and community-based services final rule who've been doing that work. And not merely a handful of people scattered across the country who will write and speak and go to local meetings about why we want and need community inclusion, but something that brings together all of those people to say, okay, what can we do to actually support actually disabled people as well as people that want to work in allyship with us, people who are working to provide support and services in the day-to-day -day work of doing so in a way that doesn't simply use person-centered as a buzzword, but actually is about what individual actual disabled people want to make sure that each of us, no matter what our support needs are, no matter what our impairments are, can actually have full and meaningful control over our own lives, over our everyday choices. And unfortunately and sadly, that's hard to find. It's not impossible. Because even most of the supposedly progressive provider organizations, when you meet them and, and you see the staff of the provider agency along with people they're supporting who have disabilities, I still hear special voice. You know the voice that I mean when someone knows that a person has a disability and instead of talking to them as you would any other person that you think of as an adult and a human, suddenly the voice turns into, oh, so what are we going to do today? So, how have you been doing in your new living situation? Oh, I hate on the that so much. I hate that. Right? Yes. Right? Yeah, I, call, and so I, call you that, hear. I call that the child's voice. Like you're talking to a yeah, child. child voice, how, how baby voice, you? elder voice. Oh, oh, I hate it. Special hate voice, it. right? And so yeah, you hear that. that even when there's a supposedly progressive agency that has brought their service recipients to a self-advocacy conference. You see it in the power dynamics of how many, certainly not all, but the vast majority of self-advocacy groups for people with intellectual disabilities are mostly controlled by advisors who don't have intellectual disabilities and often don't have any disability at all. You see it in provider agencies hosting what they call a self-advocacy group, which is really what my colleague Verena K. Gua Onailu calls the fried chicken committee to bring people in a room, give them some food, and say you're supporting them and doing something, but they really do nothing. It's make work, it's fake work, it's window dressing. And you see it where I was once visiting a group home in a state, you know, I won't name it, and this was for an organization that is supposed to be more progressive, and at the time that I visited, in this organization that is supposed to be more progressive, supposed to care more about supporting people with the actual disabled people running their lives, there was a list of residents' medications taped to a cabinet in the common kitchen. And that's the kind of thing that is so everyday and common for many of us that even oftentimes the most progressive providers don't think about because there's still this deep-rooted, pervasive idea that we're incompetent that we really can't make decisions, and at best, we're having our hands padded 
while they let us, they give us permission to make a few decisions, but really the people who are receiving the services aren't in control of anything at all. And the Alliance is setting out to change that through direct training, through assistance, through policy advocacy. And I hope, I hope that eventually we'll also be able to do so through funding, through directly supporting people with disabilities to be able to more directly control their services, through directly supporting actually progressive providers in implementing better practices, such as by having people with disabilities run the place. Why are the people with disabilities never in management? Why are we, when we are hired into the supposedly progressive agencies, simply as the part-time admin assistant? That, that right there is just another indicator as to how far the power has been skewed. We're trying to change that. We're trying to do it by focusing very specifically on a particular issue and to draw on the expertise of people who've been doing this work for anywhere from a few years to decades as people who are directly affected as researchers, as policymakers, and to bring that power together in one room for one collaboration. You know what, Lydia? You should be talking across America, okay? Well, right now you are. Actually, you're being heard throughout the world. But I mean, oh, you're so right on what you're saying. And it crosses over to so many, just as you're alluding to, other disability people with disabilities. Um, and, uh, you know... Nothing about us without us, right? That's the motto that our movement has gone by for decades, and yet it's still so routinely violated. Yes, it is. It is. Um, Well, you know, you have done a lot of work with multiply marginalized disability people. And I have many people, and plus articles I've read, friends of mine that are involved in policy that talk about the large number of people with disabilities who are institutionalized or incarcerated. Why, why is that happening? This is rooted in the entire history of who we are as a country. Of course, it's not limited to the United States. That's where you and I are institutionalization and incarceration happen worldwide, but the United States has always been a leader, a world leader in mass incarceration. There's a common graphic that advocates use when talking about the scale and scope and how staggering it is of how many people, human beings, we walk inside cages. That is a graph of the per capita rate of how many people are imprisoned in our country followed by the next countries that have the next highest per capita rate. So you have the highest rate in the world. Our bar on that bar graph doesn't fit on a chart. It always goes outside the chart, outside the lines, because you can't scale it. That's how big and enormous it is. The history of ableism, disability oppression, is deeply entwined and impossible to separate from our history of white supremacy, of colonialism, and capitalism. Ableism depends on so many things. It depends on who we are counting as valuable and worthy and desirable. That's what I've always said. TL's working definition of ableism focuses it 
on ideas of intelligence and excellence. That's TL's working definition. I've heard other people talk about ableism as rooted in ideas of productivity, rooted in ideas of health, even rooted in ideas of beauty. And you know, all of that is true. That's what ableism boils down to, is separating out people into people that count as human and people that are less than human, not really human, and disposable. And when society has been organized around separating us out by how our bodies or brains work or what people assume is true of how our bodies and brains work, what they're capable of, what they can't do, what they struggle with, that's what, that's what you get. You get treating queer people as victims of pathology. You get treating people of color, particularly colonized black and brown people, as somehow backwards from white European civilization. You get people whose society discards locked in cages to be kept away, to be kept out of sight, whether it's in the idea of Susan Schweik's discussion of what it means to hide unsightly beggars, or whether it's just what we call today quality of life laws, why people don't want to walk down a street because if they're rich, and they would have to see and come face-to-face with an unhoused person who is living on the street. Why, what happens at a university where they don't want people who can't conform and excel according to their academic standards and their strict academic timeline? Why, what happens with gentrification? The history of disability is a history of criminalization and incarceration, of deciding which people shouldn't be allowed to reproduce or be reproduced, which people have unruly bodies, which people are socially deviant. Institutions and prisons are really two sides of the same coin. They're instruments of social control and of social cleansing. The people who are most likely to be trapped in the gears of this state violence have always been those who live at the intersections. Disabled black and brown people, disabled indigenous people, disabled queer and trans people, disabled queer and trans people of color, whoever is at the margins of the margins, whoever is the minority of minorities, whoever is the most easily isolated, the most easily erased, the most easily exploited. That has always been our history, and it's never surprising when we hear of news stories of people trapped in institutions, of people trapped in prisons, of people killed by police, of people killed when they were attempting to seek help when they were in crisis, it's not surprising because that is the way our system was designed to operate. Modern policing evolved out of slave-catching squads. Prisons as a penal system has evolved from the system of workhouses for impoverished people and as a way of controlling the movements of formerly enslaved black people. That's the whole loophole in the 13th Amendment. The name is for Ava DuVernay's documentary discussing that literally is the 13th Amendment that we like to think of as abolishing slavery is really creating a legal loophole for slavery. Slavery is only illegal if it's a private actor. It's perfectly legal for the state as long as we say that the person who is enslaved has been convicted of a crime. It's the history of our immigration policies. 
whether it, whatever group it is that we've racialized as not white, even if that group has been assimilated into whiteness today, or in especially in the cases of groups that have never been assimilated into whiteness and never will be, that is the rhetoric that our president is using to say these are animals. Where does that come from? Ableism. To say this is a group of people that we're counting as less than human, a group of people that is scary, threatening, and dangerous that we should keep out of our borders, whether it was in the cartoons depicting Chinese immigrants, my ancestors, as monkeys who were raping white women in the West Coast, images that are very eerily similar to the anti-black racism that we have cultivated for centuries in this country of white women's fears of black men, whether it is the rhetoric that is used right now to justify what this country and its government is doing to Latinx, Mestizex, Chicanx, Indigenous, South and Central American people who are attempting to cross our border or enter our country through any means, with or without documentation. This is all rooted in ableism. This is all rooted in a history of using disability and the rhetoric of it as a tool of social control. It's all connected. You know, one of the things you mentioned, the unsightly bakers, I read that book, The Ugly Laws, and I thought, wow, look how deep-seated this is, that people were arrested because they're on the street and have a disability. You know, you've just got to wonder, wow, what is that all about? And, you know, when I speak throughout the world, you see that pervasive shame with people with disabilities. And certainly when I was in Indonesia, you know, many of these countries are 50 years behind where we are. But, you know, we've still got a long way to go right here. We've still got a long way to go. And just as you've already and you know, I, I want to challenge that, too. Uh, the idea that the United States is ahead of anyone, I don't know that that's true. I really don't. And I'm always hesitant to say things like that because anytime someone pulls out a story from another country to say, look how horrible this is, at least we're not doing that, I can tell you for a fact we're doing it. There were stories that came out about South Korea where people with intellectual disabilities have been essentially enslaved to work long, hard hours in horrifically abusive and violent working conditions and rice farms. We do that. There was a story that, that broke that was publicized in the New York Times just a few years ago, the boys in the bunkhouse, about a group of men with intellectual disabilities, men, not boys, who for decades had been enslaved in a place that was allegedly operating as a regulated sheltered workshop, even aside from the issue of sub-minimum wage itself, and, and we're working in enslavement conditions. All of the people with disabilities who are incarcerated are working in enslavement conditions. Heard helping educate to advance the rights of deaf communities estimates that upwards of 70 to 80 percent of incarcerated people in the U.S. are deaf or have a disability. So that story from South Korea, that happens here. Stories that I've heard from India that say, well, in India, people with mental health disabilities are being chained to beds. They're being chained to beds and left to rot in back rooms. We do that here. We do that in the United States. We do it in the homes of people with disabilities that are trapped by their abusive families, and we do it in institutions here, institutions and prisons alike. We do it 
like what what I've heard stories come out um, that in that in um, some other countries, people with disabilities are being large-scale warehoused in institutions, and people like to think we don't do that anymore after deinstitutionalization in the Reagan era, and that's not true. We do still have large-scale institutions. Just because Pennhurst and Willowbrook are closed doesn't mean that they went away. Yeah, that's sad. That is very sad. Well, hey, it is time for Advocacy Matters. And as all my listeners know, on the half hour, I have National Disability Rights Leader, CEO of the Pennsylvania Disability Rights Network, Perry Jude Radisick, every week giving us an update on what's happening. Perry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Joyce, and, and thanks for having Lydia on the show. It's uh, great to talk about these issues, uh, especially as we face issues like uh, the separation of families and the death of Anton Rose in Pittsburgh. So thank you. Uh, we appreciate uh, your show today. Uh, today I want to talk about medical marijuana in schools. And at the, on- at the onset, I want to say that the federal government continues to view marijuana as an illegal substance and a crime. So the information in my segment is not intended to assist in providing guidance in violating federal law. But this week, the U.S. Federal Drug Administration, the FDA, approved the use of a pharmaceutical-grade cannabis oil, or CBD, for the use of individuals with two forms of rare epilepsy, which is great news. And for those whose lives are improved with the use of medical marijuana, Pennsylvania became the 23rd state in the country to approve the use of medical marijuana for a short list of serious medical conditions, including epilepsy. Recently, the Pennsylvania Departments of Health and Education issued interim guidance for the use of medical marijuana on school property. And as it stands now, a parent, legal guardian, or caregiver can administer medical marijuana to their child or the student on school premises if certain conditions are met. This would include providing the school principal with a safe harbor letter, notification to the school principal, and meeting other requirements. It's so important that families familiarize themselves with each state requirement, including Pennsylvania's. Not all states permit students to access medical marijuana on school property. Like I said, Pennsylvania became the 23rd state. In California, families must remove, actually in, in Colorado, yes, in California, families must remove their children from school campuses to, to administer the medicine. So in response, families have introduced legislation to change those rules. On the other side of the coin, Colorado school nurses can administer a non-smokable form of medical marijuana to students with parental permission on school grounds. So if you can see, the states are all over the place. 
California, you've got to remove the kids from school grounds. In Colorado, the school nurses can administer the medication. In Pennsylvania, only parents can under certain requirements. So on our website later today or tomorrow, you're going to find Pennsylvania's interim guidance from the Department of Education and Health, and you're going to find information about the FDA changes, Colorado and California. So our website is disabilityrightspa.org. And at Advocacy Matters, with an issue like medical marijuana, it takes careful research and staying current with changing rules and guidance that vary from state to state. So thank you, Joyce, for letting us hey, get this information uh, oh, out. Oh, Perry, thank you. Um, a couple comments I want to make, but first, don't forget, make a contribution because Perry is really working <clears throat> as a great advocate for change. At Disability Rights PA, is it .com or .org? .org. .org. Hey, Perry, as all my listeners know, I'm a woman living with epilepsy. So this is something I am very familiar with so that everyone knows there are, this is used when children have uncontrollable seizures. I mean, there are children that have hundreds of seizures a day. I'm very blessed that, yes, I still have them, but, you know, once every two years. I don't have them often. And what I want to say about this is that I have parents, many, that have told me, Medical marijuana has saved my child's life. Medical marijuana has reduced seizures substantially. So I just want to talk about the one thing you said about, you know, getting someone's permission. Ah, that could be way too late. That could be way too late. So this is one thing I'm very familiar with, and I'm really happy that you talked about that, Perry. Um, And we will look forward to hearing from you next week. Yes, thank you, Joyce. So, Lydia, I want you to tell everyone about, before we talk about the Paul Hearn Award, I want you to talk about the work you do uh, in the intersexual, intersectional social movement. I know this is a big thing to you, so let's hear about it. Everything that I do is rooted in a framework of disability justice. That term itself was coined by a group of disabled black, brown, and other people of color, Patty Byrne, Leroy Moore, Mia Mingus, and they chose to use this new terminology as distinct from the term disability rights because it's intended to mean something different. I've also been doing disability rights work for a very long time. I've done that longer than I've done disability justice work. Disability rights is predicated on the idea that we can use law and policy to change what needs to be changed in our society to improve our world for disabled people. And that can be true. But disability justice recognizes that while laws and policies may be necessary for some of these changes, they're insufficient. The law will not liberate us. Changing the culture means so much more than simply changing the law. 
And we already know that just from experience, right? Like we passed the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. We passed the Rehab Act in 1973. We passed the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act also early 1970s, right? And we have all these laws, and yet we're still not able to go outside, to go into any random business, to be able to access court documents, to be able to go to school, to be able to communicate, to live. We're fighting. ADAPT is fighting to keep Medicaid. Like, we have all these laws, and yet our people are still dying. And so disability justice says law may be necessary, but it is completely insufficient for the goal we want to get to. And not only is it insufficient as a matter of strategy or tactic, but the idea that disability should just focus on disability, which is very much what disability rights will often do, is also fundamentally flawed because all of our identities are connected. All of our experiences are connected, and our struggles and our movements are connected. They're not the same. The struggle against white supremacy does not look the same as the struggle against what patriarchy is. It doesn't look the same as the struggle against ableism. But they are connected. They depend on each other to exist. You can't have a sexism without an ableist idea that women are less intelligent than men, that women are more emotional and therefore irrational than men. Like, that's a really ableist idea. You can't have racism without ableism, the idea that people of color won't achieve as much as white people. That's ableism. That is an ableist idea. So what disability justice does is it recognizes that if all of our struggles and our issues are connected, then that means the work for our justice and our freedom has to take that into account at every possible turn. It's literally not possible to do reproductive justice work if you're not doing disability justice. It's literally not possible to do real work to challenge the violence of capitalism if you're not doing work to enableism. It's not possible to challenge white supremacy unless you're trying to challenge disability oppression because all of these things are connected. And so that informs everything that I'm doing, whether it's advocacy work I've done behind the scenes to support people living at multiple margins. It means recognizing that the folks who are in most need of peer support and mutual aid and assistance are probably the people who live at multiple intersections and therefore are the least likely to be able to access any resources at all. It means whenever I'm involved with planning something, planning a way for us to support one another, planning a way for us to live with one another, or planning some kind of education or advocacy event, thinking who is doing this planning, who is being benefited by it, and who will be harmed or exploited? What can we do to avoid harming or exploiting anyone? What can we do at the design? That's intersectional work because it's taking into account how multiple forms of oppression work in people's lives. That if we're organizing a protest, for example, it's harmful and dangerous to organize a protest without planning for the safety of the people most at risk from police violence. It's harmful and dangerous to organize a protest and act as civil disobedience without accounting for people's health and mental health needs, 
when deciding how are we going to do this? Who will support whom? What are we going to do to keep each other alive, to support one another, to actually practice our solidarity? It's harmful and dangerous when we think for even a second that we're going to solve the problems that face our community just through funding and grants and 501c3s. Because can funding grants and 501c3s do amazing and, and needed work? Yes, they can. They can also be places of violence and harm. They can also be places that only people with certain resources can access. I have a college education. That gives me access to a lot more opportunities than all of the people in our community who were forced out of college or for whom college was never even an option. And that's a problem. Because then if we rely on the people with college degrees like mine to be the ones who are leading everything, that's an issue that's dangerous and harmful for all of the people in our community who don't have that layer of privilege. It's a problem when we think that, that if we elect some people that that's going to solve our, all of our problems too. Should we be voting? If you feel like you're conscious that that's what you need to be doing, absolutely. Voting can be important. Voting can be necessary. But it's not going to save us at the end of the day. Because depending, you know, on what election it is we're talking about, if the option is between terrible candidate one and slightly less terrible candidate two, the most marginalized people in our communities are still going to be screwed in either of those scenarios. Can a slightly less terrible candidate maybe make things a bit better for some folks? Sure. And maybe that's worth doing as a form of harm reduction. But that's not the same thing as our freedom. Not by a long shot. So intersectional work isn't something that you can just say that you're doing. It's something that you do. It's something that you do in a lifetime. It's something you practice because it means taking into account multiple layers of privilege, power, and oppression, where they overlap, where they collide, and what that looks like externally, what we're advocating for to the people who have power outside disability community, and internally, how we design our movement, our groups, our organizations, our projects, our programs. And if any piece of that tries to rely on laziness, single-issue politics, just defaulting to whoever already has the most privilege and power and resources, that's not intersectional. If we're not uncomfortable, we're not doing it right. If we're just saying this is a disability-focused thing, Lydia, you talking about race or trans issues or queer issues, that that's nice, but that's something innovative, that's something for the separate track, that's not intersectional work. That's treating you like a token. I bought a t-shirt recently that literally says I am not a token and I am planning to wear that to more meetings because it's a not so subtle message. Like I'm not a token. I'm a person. I'm part of this movement. I'm part of this community, whatever we're calling this community. And intersectional work means not forgetting that. Intersectional work means asking why do only a few people who live at the margin get to be in a room? And why is there a room in the first place? Why are there walls? And doors, why is it that people with the most privilege have to worry about their comfort and what's convenient for them when the people with the least privilege are literally worrying about dying? 
intersectional yeah. work is a lifelong practice. It's like what Audre Lorde says. We don't do single-issue politics because we don't live single-issue lives. Right. How true. Wow. That's so powerful. Well, Lydia, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is because I'm so proud that you were a Paul Hearn Award winner at the American Association of People with Disabilities Gala. Congratulations to you. Um, And it is a very prestigious award. So I wanted to ask you two things. First, what did that mean to you? And number two, what do you plan on doing with this recognition? It was incredible to have the opportunity to be recognized and honored in a space that is historically and continues to be overwhelmingly, sometimes suffocatingly white and wealthy. To follow in the footsteps or wheels, as the case may be, of other disabled people of color who've been honored by the Hearn Award before, Talila Lewis, Odinola Ojalumi, Catherine Perez, and to have the opportunity to stand on that stage knowing, here are the folks that have come before me, and hopefully there will be many that come after me, that we can collectively demonstrate to that it is possible to be disabled, to be black, Latinx, or Asian, to be queer, to be gender nonconforming, and to be in a position to do something for our communities, to force ourselves into the conversation in the room, when for most of our lives and much of our work, we're busy fighting against being shut out and kept out. The award for me is an opportunity not just to recognize what I've done, but to recognize what my communities have been doing, to recognize what my communities are doing and will continue to be doing. The funding from the award I've used to launch the first ever fund for autistic people of color, and that is a dream come true for me when Morena Kegiwa Onaiwu and Iash Kanavi and I began work on all the weight of our dreams, the first ever anthology entirely by autistic people of color and otherwise negatively racialized autistic people. Back in 2014, I made it clear from the start that one of the things I wanted to do with any potential profits we might make from the anthology is to pull all that money directly back into a fund for autistic people of color, by us, for us. And what the Hearn Award has allowed me to do is to actually make that fund a reality because the Hearn Award money was much more money than we've ever been able to make from selling copies of the anthology since we published it last year. And we announced it just last week. We launched the Fund for Community Reparations for Autistic People of Color's Interdependence, Survival, and Empowerment. What this fund will allow people to do is worldwide, worldwide, 
apply for funds for anything, something personal, paying their rent, getting back their car after it's been repoed, making sure that an elderly parent or a child can be taken care of, paying for food, getting a, a suit for a job interview, to expenses that everyone should be able to have, but often don't be able to do something nice for themselves for once, be able to do something nice for their kid for once, be able to show their art for the first time, be able to put together a zine, seed their own project in their local community for multiply marginalized folks. Essentially, anyone can apply for funds from our new fund unrestricted. It's a word that scares a lot of people in the nonprofit world, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being a bit of a maverick because the instant we put strings and requirements, prerequisites, and gatekeeping on funds, and I understand legal reasons why people need to do that, but the instant we do that, we shut out the people at the margins of the margins from being able to benefit directly. When we use organizational intermediaries, we can also make it difficult, if not impossible, for people with the most pressing needs to be able to survive their situation. If someone has written to us and said, I'm about to lose money for my life-saving medication. If they have to go through a long grant process through an organization that has a six-month, 18-month, 10-year waiting list, they're probably dead. We created this fund because we don't think it's going to solve everyone's problems. It can't. It is a limited amount of money. We've already received almost 40 applications, and it's only been less than seven days. And But we do think that it's a necessary start. We think it's a necessary start to putting our literal money where our literal mouths are. Well, I guess perhaps not quite literally since money can be kind of gross and I don't want it in my mouth. But you know what I mean, right? Like (laughs) to actually put into practice what it is that we say we're doing. And that to me is the most important part of receiving this recognition is turning it right back around to the communities that I come from and the communities that I work alongside because we deserve it, because we are worth it. Oh, love that. Hey, before we end the show today, I I have something I have to ask you. It seems all of a sudden like it's a avalanche. When you talk to companies... All of a sudden, they'll say, you know, we want, we want to hire people with autism. We have an autism movement. We, we want to get people in here with autism. I mean, like, it's unbelievable. It's not, we want to have people with epilepsy or blind. We want autism. We want autism. I wanted to ask you, what, what do you think about that? You know, why do you think it is? And do you think maybe there's a pity component there or what did you say before about I'm not a token I mean I don't know what do you think about it oh absolutely it is it can be very much about giving yourself a do-good or pat on your back it's exploitative it can be objective and dehumanizing and it's often severely exclusionary despite the claim that many of these programs are about inclusive employment. We're trying to hire autistic people. You're trying to hire autistic white men who have backgrounds in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. You don't care about autistic women of color with backgrounds in STEM. You don't care about autistic people of any race or gender whose backgrounds are not in STEM. And you don't care about autistic people 
who are who are or should be hired to do work above an entry level position. And that to me tells me everything that I need to know. If someone is saying, well, we want to hire autistic people because autistic people are really good at highly detailed, monotonous work that requires a lot of repetitive tasks, close attention to detail that no one else would do because it's really boring. I find that insulting. You're literally telling me I want to hire you as an autistic person because I think you'd be good at boring work. Excuse me? You wouldn't say that to literally any other employee. I want to hire you so you can do my boring work. But you will say it to me because of ableist stereotypes about autistic people. Now, of course, that's not to say that there aren't autistic people that would like to do monotonous and repetitive work. Sure, there are. There are also non-autistic people who'd like to do it. And there are also a lot of people, autistic or not, who will do that work, not because they like it, but because it's what they'll get paid to do. And without a paycheck, well, you can't make rent, you can't buy food. And in our capitalist world, that's kind of bad for your survival. And when companies are saying we want to hire autistic people for these reasons, yes, it absolutely strikes me as pity or charity. They won't call it that. They'll say it's a praiseworthy, innovative endeavor. They're, they're identifying a problem. The pain point is that autistic people are severely unemployed and underemployed. And the pain problem in our industry, uh, the pain point, excuse me, the pain point is that we don't have people that can do these hyper-detailed STEM-related tasks. Okay, great. Well, what about treating autistic people as humans, not as commodities? What about treating autistic people as people who, like every other person in this world, Maybe looking for work because we need it to survive. And if we're lucky enough or privileged enough, we might like to do something we'd like too in the process if it's possible to do that. And, and I, you know, I, I've seen this happen where the same thing that we were talking about earlier, managers will use special voice when they talk to the autistic employees. Or an, an autistic employee will come into a workplace. I've seen this happen many times. People reach out to me all the time with their horror stories in a corporation, government agency, nonprofit, you name it, the autistic employee will come in and the instant that it's apparent they're autistic, they need an accommodation of some kind, there's something they can't do, they need assistance with some task, they begin to face hostility, discrimination, exclusion, and push out. It happens again and again and again. So when a corporation says, we want to hire autistic people because we think their skills would be useful for our company, that sends a red flag up to me. We're not the same. We're not a monolith. We don't all have the same background. We don't all have the same interests. Frankly, we don't all have the same skills. So they're saying, oh, we want to hire autistic people. You mean you want to hire the narrow subset of some privileged autistic people who also fit into stereotypes about autistic people. And while that might be fine for those specific people, and I certainly don't begrudge them wanting to make sure they have money for food and a home, that doesn't help anyone else. You know, autistic people are one of a handful of demographic groups. We're not the only one. But we're one of a handful of demographic groups where for every level of educational attainment an autistic person gains, our, our unemployment rate goes up. So autistic people who are high school dropouts or who don't have a high school diploma have the highest employment rate. They have a higher employment rate than autistic people who just have a high school diploma or a GED. 
those people in turn have a higher employment rate than autistic people with some college, who have a higher employment rate than autistic people with a college degree, who have a higher employment rate than people who have a graduate degree, who have a higher employment rate than people who have the terminal degree of their field. You know what, Lydia, I am so excited about this. I'm going to have you back on to talk about this. I am. But right now, oh, my God, the show's already done. How's that possible? Uh, But we're going to have Lydia back this year. I really love this topic. Um, Okay. Talking to you next week. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice. Talk to you next week with Judy Human. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.